Farmers apply nutrients to their fields in the form of chemical and animal fertilizers. Yields grow and people are fed. But out of sight and out of mind, nutrients permeate the ground and seep their way into local rivers and local groundwater. The water meanders its way past other farms, picking up more phosphorus and more nitrates. It keeps up its steady path until it reaches the sea. Over time, the population grows and demands on the farms intensify. Farmers increase the use of fertilisers and the density of animal populations to feed a hungry society. The chemical load increases further and the enriched river becomes an industrial outflow, pumping ever-increasing quantities of nutrients out into the sea. The extra food is greeted by ravenous algae, which bloom. Satellite imagery shows the water beginning to discolour. The algal bloom grows exponentially. Local fishing fleets begin to report a reduced catch as fish flee the area and biodiversity nosedives. Some algae are vital for a healthy ecosystem, but if the population becomes too large, as they die and decompose, they deoxygenate the water, and soon it's an ecological dead zone, stripped of marine life. We can't build a treatment plant to stop this runoff. It's coming from everywhere. There's no pipe to block, no single source to intercept. Every river, every fjord, every stream is a vector. So what can we do? We look to nature. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode, we've partnered with WSP to learn about how they are using one of the humblest creatures in the ocean to be the saviour of our coastal waters. We're journeying to Denmark, a country famous for its meat production, especially pork, which is grappling with the problem of eutrophication of the waters around its coast. In this episode, we will learn about a new way of organising our oceans. We will learn about how clever marine engineering and a bit of planning can make the sea and the land work together for the benefit of both. And we will learn just how tasty mussels are. But before we can learn just how the blue mussel can help solve our problems, I'm sorry to say that things are actually worse than just the deoxygenation of our seas. There's more? Yes, we are placing other demands on our blue planet that need to be understood before we tell the story of just how the blue mussel will save the day. If you look at FAO, the, the UN Food Organization, they have some very nice graphs showing that the, the catches of wild fish globally has been stable since 1995. Very stable. There is not more wild fish globally to catch. It's, it's a very stable label. This is Harold Speyer, and he has a problem. He is the research and development manager at Leroy Seafood. It's a sustainable Norwegian fish farming company that is the largest trout producer in the world, producing 30,000 tonnes annually, but also producing a lot of salmon, 150,000 tonnes. At the same time, the human consumption of that wild fish, the, the human part of it, has increased 
So with the wild fish catch stable and human consumption increasing, the proportion of the catch that can go to other sectors is decreasing. Fish meal is a component in many animal feeds, and it's particularly important as an ingredient in fish feed. With increased demand and static supply, fish meal for animal feed is not prioritised. So the supply of fish meal and fish oil globally is decreasing. At the same time, the aquaculture industry globally is increasing very rapidly. As more people in the world are depending on the farmed fish for protein. When you design a, a, a fish feed, you're using a mixture of different raw materials. Some of that raw materials should be of marine origin. And that is mainly because of the, of the amino acid profile, the protein quality, and, and also fish or fish meal or, or marine proteins contains elements that gives a good palatability of, of, of the feed. And yes, taste does matter for fish feed. And we will have more on that in a moment. But today, fish meal is accounting for between 5 and 10% of the recipe. The rest of the raw materials is soy or gluten and fish oil, rapeseed oil and stuff like that. And why do we not use more fish meal? Well, first of all, there's no more fish meal in the world. And uh, to today, the, the biggest fish meal uh, user is, is the, the pig industry in China. With fish farming in second place. And when you have a, a, a raw material where there is a limit availability of that raw material, the prices is reflected uh, on, on that. The, the prices on fish meal is quite high. The fish does not necessarily need to eat feed with a high percentage of fish meal, although concocting an alternative that is so nutritionally perfect and has the right taste is a real challenge. The fish needs amino acids and fatty acids and vitamins and minerals. And they don't really care what sources you're using for these amino acids, fatty acids. But we know that, that uh, fish meal contains all the amino acids the fish needs. So, so it's, it's a safe and, and easy raw material to, 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 to use. It takes more brain knowledge when you add in uh, gluten or, or, or soy or, or other vegetable protein sources. But, but the fish doesn't really need fish meal, uh, more than about 10% of the recipe. But pure nutrients aside, there is that taste issue. And fish meal? That taste is attractive to, to the fish. And, and from a production, aquaculture fish production point of view, it's a question about how much feed can you give the fish every day. If the fish don't like the feed, they don't eat. So you have to have a high palatability on the feed. So marine ingredients are essential for fish feed, at least to about 10% of the total. But... If everyone should have 10% fish meal in their diets, there will be no more fish meal available. If only there were some other source of marine protein available to take some of the burden off fish meal. And if only clouds of nitrogen and phosphorus pouring into the sea were a source of food for this magical creature, rather than a threat, as they are to fish. 
My name is Man Lemsgaard, and uh, I'm a marine biologist now working at the WSP. Maren has been on the water her entire life. I think my first sailing trip was when I was two weeks old. So that was when I started sailing. And then I've been working as a dive guide uh, in Egypt. And I've also been uh, sailing on the, like long trip sailing, where uh, we've been sailing for uh, half a year and four months uh, together with other young people on sailing ships in Indonesia and in the Red Sea. So I've been looking for adventures on the sea, I would say. These adventures on the sea gave Maren a fascination with the marine ecology, which led to her taking a master's degree in marine biology and then a doctorate at Copenhagen University in marine ecology. And she began to study something troubling. We were looking for the, uh, the coupling between the uh, microalgae uh, and the nutrients coming from land and into the sea. Uh, the theory says that it's obvious that the more nutrients you put into the ocean, the more microalgae you will have. But it's really difficult to show in, uh, in practice. So we looked at the water column and because the water column is often divided in, in more than one layer, you could, you could see that, or we could demonstrate actually and show that there was a coupling, but only in the surface layer between the nutrients coming in and then an increasing uh, production of microalgae. In Denmark, which has a human population of 6 million, but a pig population of over 13 million, this is an important area to study. So uh, we have what you can call a heavy nutrient load on our coastal systems. And because of that, we've had high uh, microalgae productions. We have, I think, two out of 219 water bodies is in good ecological state. And we would really like to improve this. After her PhD, Marvin was looking for somewhere to continue her research. But it turned out that just studying the problem was not as interesting as actually doing something about it. The plan is simple enough. Place a blue mussel farm at the mouth of a heavily polluting fjord. But why blue mussels? What makes the little marine bivalve mollusk, known to science as Mytilus edulis, quite so magical? Well, where to start? <laughs> Um, well, the main thing is that they are filter feeders. So they filter away all the microalgae and the microalgae takes up the nutrients. And that's what we have too much of in Danish fjords. The farm filters 2 million cubic meters of water per hour. The biggest artificial filter in Denmark can only filter 1,500 cubic meters per hour, less than 1% of the mussel farm. So. It's really, uh, it's really effective. So we wanted to have like a, a blue resource that takes away the excess nutrients. And then it's in these, all these uh, microalgaes has like the right amino acids. It has a lot of good micronutrients that we need. So the mussels will not only feed on the microalgae and clean the water, but they take in nutrients from the algae and grow rich in fatty acids. 
becoming a good source of marine protein and acids themselves. The blue mussel story is, is actually a combination of many projects. But the project about blue mussels and trying to establish this value chain with blue mussels, where we produce blue mussels and we process them into feed, and then uh, use this feed in the aquaculture sector. Uh, this project is called InproFeed. In 2016, the team started to raise the approximately $7 million of funding needed for the equipment. And when we got that in place, uh, we started a collaboration with this uh, company called Blue Biomass. Uh, and they started establishing 20 tubes of this smart farm system. And then the next year, they um, established more tubes. And now they have 335 tubes in an area called Venusund, which is in, uh, in a Danish fjord up north. The task was to establish a commercial route to market for the mussel produce, but also carefully examine the environmental impacts of the farm. Maren says that people have made a mistake on land, farming so intensively. So we, we don't want to do the same mistake in the ocean and, uh, and do industrial production that would leave the nature ruined. So it was very important for us to, uh, to look for any both positive and negative effects of this industrial production of blue mussels. And the effect on water quality was quite literally clear for all to see. One of the parameters that you measure good water quality on is chlorophyll. And that is also what is used in the EU regulations. So we measure the concentration of chlorophyll and then the concentration of, of microalgae. Um, and then we also measure the visibility of the water. So how many meters of depth can you see down in the water, uh, basically? And uh, within the farm, you, there was uh, like up to two meters higher visibility than outside the farm. And it's uh, like the, the, the depth is uh, five to six meters. So that means within the farm, you can see all the way down to the depth or to the bottom. And outside the farm, you can't. So it's, it's really something that is visible for everyone. And this is important. Demonstrating an obvious improvement to water quality helps win over local people who are understandably concerned about any kind of development in their waters. This system does involve building a working 90 hectare farm after all. The production systems are like floating tubes, which is 120 meters long. And underneath the tubes, you have uh, three meter deep nets. And on these nets, the natural larvae of blue mussel comes and, and, and sits. And then from that, they grow. And they just sit there in the water column and they eat whatever drives by in the water or swims by. So you have all the larvae sitting on the nets. And sometimes you have so many larvae sitting on the nets that you have to make a thinning just as you thin your carrots in the garden. If you want to have big carrots, you need to take some of the small away. And that's the same you do with the mussels. Larger mussels are good for human consumption. Smaller ones that might be discarded on a typical farm could be useful to Harold and the aquaculture industry. And this is where the blue biomass farming process is a little unconventional. 
So uh, when the mussels settle in May, June, uh, you let them grow for a while. And then late summer, you do the first thinning, which is uh, done by big brushes. So you brush away. You can, uh, you can control how intense you want to do the brushing. So you can brush lightly on the mussel nets and then uh, suck up the water with the mussels and then uh, make that in a storage or keep that in a storage. And all these small mussels have very thin shells and they have a very high amount of uh, nitrogen and phosphorus. You get, a, you get an extra biomass in this way compared to the traditional way of uh, producing mussels where you have them in, in loops and lines. Here you have, you collect spat and then you, uh, you take the spat off when they are about four centimeters and you let them grow on lines uh, in, in the water column. But you don't get this extra biomass collection. So that's why uh, this uh, value chain was both for food, because you want to use the big mussels for food and then the small mussels for, for feed. Picking a good location for the farm is very important. A good flow of water is necessary to avoid an increase in organic matter beneath the farm. So uh, all this organic matter will lead to oxygen depletion if, if you have no exchange of water. So in this place where the farm is, that has a good exchange of water because it's a bit narrow uh, and the water just keeps going back and forth. And you have the, uh, the salty water coming in from the North Sea from the west. And the less salty water coming in from Kattegat in the east. Mussels dropping to the seafloor beneath the farm have created a substrate for marine life, actually boosting biodiversity, with some sediment species returning to the area that had not been seen since the 1940s. It creates this reef underneath that attracts a lot of, uh, a lot of animals, which also uh, can uh, be feed and food for other species like fish and crabs and yeah a lot of marine species so it's full of life underneath this farm and uh, it was really interesting to see that it's possible to place a farm in a way so it actually contributes to biodiversity instead of contributing to uh, oxygen depletion, for example as it is seen in other areas. And this took Maren totally by surprise. The environmental benefits were better than anyone had hoped. We didn't expect that uh, result at all. We were expecting an increase in the oxygen consumption underneath the farm. And it's always been a thing that you kind of accept that it has like some, some local uh, negative impact because overall in the whole water system, it has a positive impact because it reduces the baseline of oxygen consumption in the fjord, but locally in the sediment under the, the farm, you kind of accept that it has a negative impact. But this was just a, a totally, um, yeah, it was, it was not something that we expected that it actually contribute to the biodiversity. And, and a lot of the species we found are very, um, are species that you, you don't find in, in areas with eutrophication. So, the species couldn't be there if, if it was without oxygen in just short periods of time. 
The farm produces 10,000 tonnes of mussels per year, and it's projected that Denmark has the capacity to produce about 300,000 tonnes of mussels in total, which would create about 800 jobs and potentially remove 5,000 tonnes of nitrogen from the coastal ecosystems every year. Farming and doing science with mussels is not entirely a day at the beach. One of Maron's experiments to determine the optimum time to thin the mussels failed due to the breakup of winter ice sheets in the fjord. And then there are predators. For example, sea stars is the main predator for the blue mussels. You can have a whole population of sea stars on your net and you need to clean that off. Or you can have uh, like uh, macro algae sitting on the nets. And there is also always like some challenges that you need to face when you're working out in the, in the ocean environment. But no predator is more terrifying to a mussel farmer than the eider duck. Fortunately, the, the eider ducks didn't really find this place yet, but they're probably going to do uh, within the next few years. But uh, eider ducks can finish a whole production system and empty the system just within a few days. They're very effective and they dive down to 10 meters. Um, so, and it's really easy for them to eat these kinds of mussels because the shells are thinner and the meat, it has a higher percentage of meat. Uh, so it's really the very best food served for them right there in the top of the, <laughs> in the ocean. And like any good shepherd, a mussel farmer also needs to be ready. Some have tried uh, cannons, some have tried uh, things looking like eagles. And some have tried lasers. A lot of things have been tried. WSP and its partners have been collaborating with a company that produces a drone boat that acts like a big dog to scare away the eider ducks. We found that it really works with just this uh, device that sails fast towards them. That would make them move away and not just a few metres away, but away from the area. Now the nutritional and environmental research has all been worked out, the focus has switched to the business case. We have a good model of how to produce marine proteins in this way and, and at the same time remove excess nutrients. So what we will be working on from now on is more uses of the blue mussels to differentiate the market. And they are also working on ways to reduce the visibility of the farms, to make them more appealing to local residents. This will perhaps be achieved by submerging the farm entirely, monitoring muscle growth with cameras, and deciding when to harvest with the help of machine learning. They're also waiting on action from the government to incentivise the removal of waste nutrients from the marine environment, which will cause a massive reduction in the cost of these mitigation muscle farms. Mussels compare favourably to other options to reduce nutrients in coastal waters. The cost is about €12 Euros per kilogram for mussels and €28 Euros per kilogram for wetlands, which is another solution. This environmental subsidy will hopefully bring the mussel meal price in line with the price of unsustainable fish meal. But there is other demand-side work ongoing. Maren has teamed up with a chef to produce a cookbook and has also appeared on Danish morning TV to promote the use of mussels for human consumption. They aren't traditionally a popular foodstuff in Denmark, but this is changing. Yeah, it's really funny. We participated in this uh, 
morning TV show uh, with our cookbook, making recipes and and then also uh, communicating the science uh, around blue mussels and why it's sustainable. And then then the interviewer was uh, telling us that she often has blue mussels and she likes them, but it's only when she's uh, on vacation in France. And then I told her, well, it's probably the same mussels uh, as is produced in Denmark and exported to southern France. So that's really a good picture of how the Danish culture is uh, is very far from uh, from uh, eating a lot of blue mussels in Denmark and and taking them into their own kitchens. Denmark exports 90% of its mussels and building a domestic demand is seen as important. In the show notes, we've linked to a recent calculation of the carbon impacts of various food in the Danish market. For unfatted beef, for example, the cost is just under 152 kilograms of carbon for every one kilogram of edible food. For the humble mussel, this figure is 1.77 kilograms. So you can really make a difference if you change your beef with blue mussel just once in a while. So we wanted to change this culture and then make it accessible for for the wider Danish people. And that's why we wanted to make the, the cookbook with 40 recipes and recipes that is easy to make. And we've linked to Maren's book, which she wrote in collaboration with the chef Mikael Vederman. Currently, the book is only available in Danish, but who knows, if the demand is strong enough, it may be released in English too. My favourite recipe is the one with um, mustard, the mustard sauce, and with the fresh horseradish. That is definitely my favourite one. But this project hinges on fish and animal feed, and it's people like Harold Sveyer who need to be convinced. And from what he said earlier in the episode about the availability of fish meal, muscle meal has to become viable. Yes, it has to. It has to. That's the, that's the right. It's a, a question about uh, the economy of scale. You you need to produce uh, some th- some hundred thousand tons of, of blue mussel meals. You need some blue mussels available. It has to be uh, industrialized. The whole process. And and we have started on on that journey, and I'm I'm convinced that within four or five years there's blue muscle meal on the market to a fair price. Leroy Seafood buys some four hundred thousand tons of fish feed every year. Four hundred thousand tons. If ten percent of that is fish meal, that forty thousand ton, and we account for twelve percent of the Norwegian salmon production. But if you have 40,000 tons of of blue mussel meal, you are definitely in the market. The 300,000 tonne potential production of blue mussels in Denmark would result in a total of about 45,000 tonnes of mussel meal for feed. This is just from Denmark, and Norway produces a lot of Europe's salmon. But as Harold said earlier, the fish have a say in whether mussel meal will be successful. It doesn't just come down to the nutrients, it also comes down to the taste. On the protein level, on the amino acid uh, profile, it's very comparable with fish meal. But blue mussel has another taste, if you like, 
than fish meal. It's a bit sweeter when you are having your bowl of boiled <laughs> blue mussels. You, 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 it tastes a bit, bit, bit uh, sweeter. And, and uh, well, when I was a kid, I was out fishing in the sea and I have my hook and put on a blue mussel on it and, and got a lot of fish by that. So, so, so that taste is attractive to, to the fish. And, and from a production, aquaculture fish production point of view, it's a question about how much feed can you give the fish every day. If the fish don't like the feed, they don't eat. So you have to have a high palatability on the feed. And I think blue mussel will contribute to that palatability. The fish is very picky. Initial tests on trout have shown that mussel meal performs to the same standard as fish meal. So things are looking very promising. The success of the Mussel Farm project and its potential is clear, but as exciting as it is, no single project will solve all of our environmental problems, even one that involves a creature as special as the blue mussel. We need to think more broadly. We are at crossroads right now when it comes to the ocean, because everyone's looking towards the ocean as being the great white hope, and this is the last frontier, and the blue economy, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And we could do this right, or we could do it wrong. This is Catherine Richardson. She is a professor in biological oceanography at the University of Copenhagen. She was also Maren's PhD supervisor. And the wrong way to do it is the way that we've done it on land. And we can see the mess we've gotten into at the moment on land, where we have very little area left for nature in itself. I mean, we're producing food on, on around a third of the ice-free land on this, on this planet. We're producing food. And about 80% of that area is used for producing meat or food for meat. For the last 30 years, Catherine has been involved in an international team developing a new domain of research called Earth System Science. This looks at the Earth as an organism or ecosystem in its own right. I'm very involved in looking at, at human activities and what they mean for the functioning of the Earth system as a whole. And of course, food production is one really important activity that we have. Like Maren, Catherine came from a marine biology background and through that found her way to food production. I was training as a biological oceanographer. My focus was phytoplankton and how much photosynthesis they do and the carbon that they fix and how many fish does it produce. And then when I in the 90s got involved in, in a big international program called the International Geosphere Biosphere Program, came on their scientific steering committee, I suddenly realized, hey, there's other people looking at, you know, I've, I didn't worry about any carbon that didn't go into fish, but there was a lot of other carbon there and a lot of it was exchanging with the atmosphere. And suddenly I realized that my little plants had a role to play in climate as well. And so it was actually, to be honest, more, my interest in food came more from an interest in this global cycling of carbon and nitrogen and how humans are affecting the, the, the global cycling of carbon and nitrogen. And food production is really one of the biggest impactors that we have. Catherine thinks that if we use the ocean right and learn from our mistakes at land, then we're looking at a future where the ocean and humanity can survive in harmony. If, on the other hand, we start 
barging out there and doing it just the way we've done on land and we've started i mean if you look at the if you look at the eu at the moment has has you know every every country has to report how they're going to use their area in the ocean and you know the most of them are going okay this area will be for fishing this area will be for windmills this area will be for agriculture this area will be for shipping this and so on and at the end of the line they say oh and anything that's left over nature can have but that's a you know that's not the way we should be doing this we should be turning this around and saying okay everything being equal the ocean is for nature we need to use it how can we combine the activities that we're that we're doing either bringing the activities together or or so we're using less area and then if we do it additively can we change the foundations that we're building our wind turbines on or our bridges? Can they be artificial reefs that actually support biodiversity? Can we do aquaculture in connection with with wind farms so that so that we use less area than than you know, there's lots of things we could do if we really respected the fact that land and ocean area our limited resource and it's needed for nature and it's needed for us and we have to find a way to use it in such a way that that um that nature also has room to develop after its own premises Catherine argues that there are lots of international agreements in place already but we are still missing the policies to implement them to force the multi-purpose use of ocean space although she does concede that the mussels are clever I think it is very clever, to be perfectly honest, but it's, you know, it's not a panacea that's going to work everywhere. And if we are using the marine environment responsibly, we need to pick locations carefully. Catherine also likes the idea of incorporating seaweed production into areas with mussel farms. Because mussels, when they, when they create their shells, they actually release CO2. So they, they do incorporate plant material that they've eaten. So they do end up catching carbon and you can take it out of the system and nitrogen. Um, but they also put some CO2 back into the system when they make their shells. Plants, on the other hand, take up both nitrogen and carbon and don't give off CO2. Well, they, they do a little bit of respiration, so that would but a very much smaller amount of, of, of CO2 because they don't make um, um, calcium carbonate. But that being said, I think both mussels and different kinds of seaweed have a tremendous potential to use the ocean in a manner that, that is, is compatible with uh, protection of nature. And is there a grand vision for the future? There is indeed. My vision for the future, I've got windmills out there, and in between the windmills I'm growing mussels on one, one axis and I'm growing seaweeds on, on wires on another axis. Uh, because, you know, here we have an area that, you know, is, is already basically used, so, so, so why not? Because we have to be cleverer about the way we do things. We are faced with an increasing population and increasing demands placed on the natural world. So we know that if we're going to feed 9 billion people, we can't use any more land area. We 
have to be careful about our use of water. We have to reduce the amount of nitrogen, phosphorus, and pesticides that we're releasing to the open environment. We have to change our relationship with biodiversity in food. So we know the constraints in order to feed 9 billion people. And fortunately, there are being developed scenarios, there are scenarios there that shows that we can do this. It's just that there's not one technical solution that's going to bring us there. It's a bouquet of solutions, some technical, some that require changes in behaviour. It's been estimated that if we just upscale the food system as it is today to feed 9 to 10 billion, that is to say we, we accept the fact we're going to throw a third of it out and so on. If we did that, it would be almost a 90% increase in our greenhouse gas emissions and we'd have to use 50% more land area to do so. Now that is in clearly incompatible with the climate goals, with the biodiversity goals, with the sustainable development goals. It just isn't an option. So no, when you, when you hear the 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 big industrialized companies, ah, but we have to upscale to feed more people. It just simply isn't true, and doing so would be a disaster for humanity. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young. And our great blue hope is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, WSP. And thanks also to Triple Nine, to Leroy Seafoods, and to the University of Copenhagen. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.